Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the New Books on Human Rights, where every week we pick a book on human rights and discuss it with its author. This is Anna Dolidze, and I have a great pleasure to talk today with Aziz Rana, professor at Cornell University, about his new book, The Two Faces of American Freedom. The book came out in 2010 from Harvard University Press. America, wrote late historian and public intellectual Tony Judd, is intensely familiar and completely unknown. Indeed, America's position as a global superpower allows everyone in the world, whether domestically in the United States or in faraway and remote places, to have an opinion about what America is. It's by no mistake that Aziz Rana's book, The Two Faces of American Freedom, opens up with an epigraph from Walt Whitman's Facing West from California's Shores. According to Rana, this verse by this quintessential American poet represents the disjuncture between the ideals values and vision that formed the cornerstone of the United States at the time of its establishment and the politics and policies which constitute it nowadays. In this book, Rana explains the disjuncture through the vision of freedom. However, this concept of freedom is not homogeneous or uniform. It's Janus-faced, constituted from the ideals of emancipation and liberation on the one hand and from the aspirations for domination and exclusion on the other. For example, in the sections which are highly pertinent to current debates on U.S. intervention in Libya, Rana illustrates how since the Wilsonian era, human rights triumphalism emerged as the main ideology for U.S. foreign interventionists. The book is highly interdisciplinary, and it draws the insights from the legal and political theory, history, postcolonial studies, international relations. For those of us that try to find their way through the maze of the complex features of the ideology of the most powerful country in the world, it is a great read. Good morning, Aziz. It's a pleasure to have you here, and thank you for your time. No, it's, uh, it's great to have the conversation. Yes. Aziz's new book, The Two Faces of American Freedom, just came out from um, Harvard University Press. It's a wonderful book. Congratulations on it, by the way. Thank you. It's, it's a great book, it's a great read, uh, and uh, it was a pleasure to go through it, and I hope that we can sort of um, un- unfold the book in our conversation um, as much as possible. And so the first thing I was thinking of before we talk about the book specifically is what prompted you to write the book? Uh, because some people write the book because they want to give a particular account of events. Other people just disagree with the stuff that is written out there already. So what were the particular reasons that prompted you to write this kind of a book? So I guess what I would say is that the driving sort of animation behind writing the book was um, a political diagnosis of the present. Um, so in other words, I was really struck, I guess, over the last few years, particularly during the Bush administration, um, by what seemed to me to be two parallel developments in American politics. On the one hand, the U.S. today really enjoys tremendous global power. So the U.S. has troops in 80% of the world's countries, something like 1,000 official and unofficial bases across the world. 
defense spending accounts for the equivalent of the rest of the world combined. Yet at the same time, despite this tremendous global power, at home, American institutions have become increasingly hierarchical, both economic and political. So there are limited spaces for citizens to participate in making the most central decisions, either about how to organize their own work life or about what policies their political leaders are going to pursue, both within political parties but also after they're elected in institutions generally. And it was this kind of combination between tremendous external power but power increasingly unmoored from clear democratic projects and commitments at home that I found especially problematic and indeed puzzling. Um, if anything, I think what sort of the, the contemporary political environment is marked by is the fact that words like democracy, freedom, they're used almost ritualistically. They're continually invoked in our domestic politics, but they don't have any clear content. And if anything, the institutions are supposed to represent those concepts don't seem to be consistent with basic virtues of either participation or widespread and distributed social control and power. So the more I was thinking about this basic uh, kind of defining problem, the more I was struck by the fact that, in a sense, it seemed to me that many of our prevailing accounts of American political identity, of American political development, and really of American origin seem to sustain what I see as this larger predicament of power unmoored from clear values. Um, and that, if anything, the primary narratives, accounts of American origin, which I refer to in the book as accounts of either American exceptionalism or constitutional perfection, sustain precisely the kinds of institutions that promote our contemporary status quo. So, for example, the theory of American exceptionalism, which is a dominant one, is the notion that unlike Europe, the U.S. really has never had to face anything like a sustained class conflict. And in fact, American politics, except for the original sin of slavery, has been marked in the very beginning by a kind of liberal equality that's continually fulfilling itself. And that this liberal equality is probably best expressed in the notion of constitutional perfection. The fact that our founders 200 years ago created, in essence, an ideal political and legal document and that all we really have to do at the present is tinker at the margins, that there are no great acts of political construction or reconstruction that are really required of us, that judges, lawyers, citizens simply impute the wisdom of past mythic founders for the present. And both end up sustaining what I view as a, as a deeply presentistic kind of thinking, namely that our institutions aren't really thought of as socially constructed, but rather as objects in nature as permanent objective facts, and that all we do is sort of operate in the interstices of these large-scale institutions and ideational structures that we don't have very much control over. Um, and if I was arguing against anybody, it was probably the sense that much of the contemporary historiography that gets read as popular books, so books about the founders or um, books about the presidents, in my view, tend to reinforce precisely these notions of exceptionalism and constitutional perfection because they present a hagiography of the founding that ends up transforming the past into a site of veneration rather than a set of tools, a toolkit for thinking creatively about what's problematic in the present, this disconnect between power and freedom, 
and providing us means for actually addressing them. So I'd say that, in a way, the, the primary focus, what motivated the book, was a diagnosis of the present that's a political diagnosis and a real disconcern, real sense of concern with um, the, the primary ways in which the American past is marshaled to sustain contemporary status quo. Very interesting. Thank you. And the book is, for, for a lay person especially, is extremely rich in the use of uh, historical materials and historical research. And we'll talk about your particular contribution to sort of history um, of America, of construction of America uh, later. But before that, I, I was thinking it would be important to, for the listeners to understand, to put the book in a context of your personality, like uh, where you come from, where you're educated, um, where, where, who were your mentors or who, what kind of thinking informed uh, your choice of this topic to write on, if you could elaborate on that. Yeah, so the book really came out of two different places. So the first, and I guess this might take a little bit of time, is that I'm an American citizen, but I'm also half Kenyan. My dad is half Indian, half African. Um, my dad and his family live in Kenya, and I spent a lot of time there as a child. And after college, I started a PhD program in political science. And initially, what I thought I really wanted to focus on was the predicament of post-colonial politics in Africa, with a special focus on Kenya. And so I took a number of courses uh, in comparative politics with a focus on thinking about colonialism and post-colonialism. Um, and I figured, well, this is actually going to be the, the, the primary emphasis of the work that I'm going to do. And over the time um, of my sort of early graduate work, I became increasingly interested in really what was going on in the U.S. and, and American politics. Um, but what I was struck by was how many of the same issues and concerns that were emerging in the American context, for example, things like uh, the imperial presidency or um, the centralization of executive power were actually issues that were similarly problematic in the African and Asian context of countries that were new, newly independent. And what I did when I started to change my focus to the American um, uh, a set of uh, circumstances and situations is that I thought, well, what I'd like to do is explore the American project through the lens, the perspective of colonialism and post-colonialism, in essence, create a narrative of American constitutional development that was self-consciously comparative, that saw the U.S. as engaged in many of the same institutional practices as, that, as you might associate with Asia and Africa, and indeed is sharing the same imperial history as what you see in Asia and Africa. And so a lot of the concepts framing for my own book project actually emerged out of literatures that focus on the colonial state and the post-colonial predicament in Africa. So that was sort of one set of influences. I'd long been interested in questions of colonialism and the possibility of democratic practice and meaningful self-determination in Africa. And it was something that I felt, you know, surprisingly perhaps, but also quite intuitively adapted to the, the context of the U.S., the first truly independent um, uh, formerly colonized state. The second set of influences is after two years in, in graduate school, um, I took my generals and I decided to go to law school. 
in large part because, again, I found myself more and more interested in American politics, and it struck me that, you know, ultimately, as, as like Tocqueville once said, that most questions of politics in the U.S. ultimately become legal questions, that law and politics are deeply interconnected in terms of thinking about both possibilities for change, but also just the way in which institutions in American structure um, their own debates and disagreements. And in law school, um, so this was 2002, 2003, 2004, really the defining political issue was um, the the use of American presidential power in the context of wars abroad, um, both following 9-11, um, but also in the context of um, Iraq, Afghanistan. And so questions about the status of enemy combatants, the centralization of executive power. And so I became more and more interested in writing a dissertation uh, precisely on these questions of uh, imperial presidency on presidential authority. But the more I dug into the issue of presidential power, um, the more it seemed to me that the question of presidential power was ultimately um, symptomatic of a much bigger set of issues and ailments. That, in a way, the primary responses that were being offered at the time and still are being offered by the legal academy for addressing the rise of executive power and the diminution of civil liberties were really legal solutions, procedural solutions. So what was needed was either to create a set of um, landmark statutes, so um, laws that governed um, national security issues, something like an emergency constitution that would be instituted by Congress to constrain and check the use of course of power precisely, the, particularly by the president. Or um, there are arguments for greater judicial oversight. But what I thought was that both of these primary procedural solutions seem to ignore an overarching fact, namely the, namely the fact that the rise of executive power was ultimately due to the sense that, you know, many Americans felt that the expansion and insertion of American power was necessary in order to safeguard Americans at home from external threat, and that, if anything, an international police power flexibly exercised by the president was really in the best interest of the country, not just in the best interest of the country, deeply, integrally tied to 20th century American identity. And so to the extent that Americans believed that you needed to have this kind of aggressive foreign presence, it was almost inevitable that you'd have institutions that would adapt to serve those basic needs, regardless of whatever procedural reforms you'd see. And so this is one of the reasons why I look back over the last 70 years, and there have been a series of procedural reform efforts, including, for example, the War Powers Resolution in the 1970s. And yet, regardless you have the continued rise of executive power. And so taking these two different um, motivations together, interest in post-colonial experience, placing the U.S. in a comparative dimension, concerns about executive power, what I decided to do was to try to think through, well, what would be an alternative account of the American experience that would give us tools for thinking about the contemporary problems? And that alternative account emerged as a way of thinking of the U.S. in terms of um, settlerism, settler colonialism, how the U.S. participated in an extended history of imperial expansion and control, and that this colonial history provided both tools for a robust internal account of freedom while connecting it to an external project of empire and expansion. Um, and I'd say probably the, 
the the main mentors were on my dissertation committee. Um, Nancy Rosenblum, Richard Tuck, Michael Sandel were uh, political theorists, mm-hmm. um, and also at law school, Bruce Ackerman, who I spent a lot of time working with, and then some of the kind of classic texts that I found incredibly useful. So um, on the on the sort of colonial uh, colonial side, um, folks like um, uh, students of, of Kenya, like John Lonsdale, and and uh, Africa generally, like Mahmoud Mandani, and then also mm-hmm. um, people that have tried to do explicitly comparative stuff, like George Fredrickson, and then um, some other folks that focus explicitly on the U.S., um, like um, uh, Christopher Latch. Oh. Well, thank you. That is very interesting, but I cannot restrain myself not to mention this, that your biography reminds me with your sort of connection with uh, Kenya and education at Harvard and teaching constitutional law. Um, it reminds me of another person about whom I guess we're going to converse later, and that is President Obama. <laughs> it's an interesting, interesting uh, connection here. Uh, uh, but bef- before we sort of continue talking about presidential powers in particular, and how your books enlightens us about the current debate about the sort of war powers and engagement in Libya and American foreign policy standings in general. I was wondering if you could uh, tell us a bit more about the audience for the book, because the book is largely and strongly interdisciplinary. I think that that is it's one of the most serious strengths. It's it's written for the audience that's interested in history in the United States, for Americanists, for lawyers as well, for people that are interested in questions of immigration. But so what, who, what was the audience that you had in mind when you were writing it? Yeah. So I, I guess the first thing to say is that probably the, the method that the book is closest to is um, in American political science, what's called American political development. And what I would describe it as is constitutional political development. Um, and what I try to do is take a, a particular analytical concept. For me, that concept is settler empire, which we can talk about a little bit later, and use it to explore certain structural features of the American constitutional project and how those structural features have shifted and changed over time, Um, and at the same time to uncover elements of American politics that we don't always emphasize, and then to use these structural dynamics to make sense of, well, what have been the guiding um, formations that have determined uh, much of American political life, as well as what are the opportunities and possibilities for change. Um, when I was writing this, I had a, a broad audience in mind. The work is self-consciously interdisciplinary. It's not meant uh, as a traditional work historical scholarship, though um, it, it's uh, heavily historical. It follows a particular chronology. Um, but it's meant to combine legal political history with political theory, constitutional law, and a conscious normative agenda, so a commitment to a particular theory of justice. And I thought that the audience um, was really a number of different communities and groups. The first group that I was thinking of in many ways was, um, you know, a a thoughtful college undergraduate, somebody that's, you know, uh, young and is increasingly dissatisfied with some of the defining approaches to thinking about the American past and the American present, and so wants to look at a text that's not just popular history, that's far denser in many ways, 
but that seeks to combine a normative politics with a reinterpretation of key historical moments. And then other communities that I was also responding to were, um, the, were constitutional historians, probably above all. So the book includes a number of reinterpretations of classic cases in American constitutional life through this framework of settler politics. And then also political theorists. So in many ways, um, my work is uh, an historically informed political theory. And so uh, I use different uh, American figures as essentially theorists of the American experience from um, people that are quite well known, like, uh, you know, like, like Lincoln or Dewey, um, to folks that are actually far less commonly engaged with American, in American um, canon, so individuals like William Manning in the late 18th century, who is a sort of small businessman and farmer, and um, Rusty's Brownson and Thomas Skidmore, uh, Walter Whale, um, Horace Kalin. And so the thought is I'm combining a lot of different um, methods, and so I want to be able to respond to constitutional historians, but also to uh, folks that do American political thought and that are interested um, in alternative accounts of some of sort of the foundational theoretical battles about the American experience. Um, and, uh, you know, my hope is that it's going to be responsive to the interests of scholars, but also um, to those that are just have a general interest in American politics and are willing to engage with a book that's probably a bit uh, more extensive than a traditional history or popular history book. Thank you. Excellent. But so I think it is the, the good time maybe to talk about your contribution to the dominant narratives or dominant accounts of founding of United States or of constructing of United States, if you want to call it like that. Um, and if you will explain for the lay audience, and this is the, would be the audience that is interested largely in political theory and theory of human rights, uh, justice, what are the dominant historical accounts out there, and where is your contribution against whom or um, in alliance with whom are you uh, making your arguments in the book? Yeah, so um, what I'd say is that as a political or popular matter, the dominant ways of thinking of the U.S. Um, have traditionally been those that I sort of mentioned earlier that emphasize American exceptionalism and constitutional perfection. They really think of the U.S. Um, as perhaps a uniquely emancipatory project that has indeed a missionary um, purpose abroad, that the U.S. is the expansion of American power is tied to the promotion of freedom throughout the globe. Um, and so that's a, that's a kind of, you know, a common trope or set of ideas that we see in just sort of the public discourse. But as far as the scholarship is concerned, that these ideas of American exceptionalism have actually faced sustained critique in recent years. Um, and in a way, what my book is a response to as far as the scholarship goes is a response to a couple different schools. So one is um, a response to the arguments made by Roger Smith in a wonderful book called Civic Ideals. So in Civic Ideals, Roger Smith develops an account of the American experience where he argues that the U.S. Um, has been marked by multiple traditions. It's called the multiple traditions thesis that on the one hand, there have been liberal and egalitarian um, accounts of the American project, but on the other hand, those liberal and egalitarian accounts have gone hand in hand 
with illiberal and exclusionary, indeed, uh, racist or sexist accounts. Um, and so he rereads the American Project by showing both that there's been periods of, of liberalism and periods of illiberalism. So my basic critique of the Smith argument is that for Smith, this is, I think, an important step forward, but Smith wants to maintain an idea that these are two sort of separate values, that the liberal and the illiberal, the Republican and um, let's say the exclusionary, are in essence like different ideas that kind of mix in the well of American politics. So that there's nothing philosophical that makes them intricately linked, and there's nothing really political. It's sort of like a, a none-too-coherent mix of competing concepts. And the point that I make in response to, to Smith is that that's really just not the case. That if you actually think of the U.S. through this frame of settlerism, which I can talk about in a little bit, that the Republican um, dimension of the American politics, which emphasizes popular participatory control, values of economic independence, the notion of a shared community marked by um, self-rule of each individual over all the primary sites of social life, that these Republican commitments were deeply, intricately tied to a project of expansion and exclusion. And that rather than a none-too-coherent mix, this was a coherent political ideology where freedom was bound to empire, that empire was understood in many ways as the servant of a rich account of liberty. Um, and so this isn't a situation where it just happens to be that there's the original sin of slavery alongside more emancipatory ideas and that over time the you know we can progress past the exclusionary dimensions. It's that actually the internal accounts of liberty were fostered and sustained by these external accounts of exclusion and subordination. So that's that's one um, set of scholarly debates that I'm engaged with. Another in the legal literature is there's an extended argument that you see that's quite common, that the U.S. shouldn't be thought of as an empire, that it wasn't constitutionally structured as an empire. And the reason why is because um, the U.S., except for minor excursions at the end of the 19th century, the beginning of the 20th century, following the Spanish-American War with Puerto Rico and the Philippines, was never committed to a project of colonial dependency. In other words, all new territory was ultimately on a path to statehood. And for this reason, we can't think of the U.S. as a constitutional project and empire because territory wasn't structured around differential legal regimes. And my basic response to that is that this, in fact, misses the heart of what made the U.S. a colonial enterprise, and that the variant of colonialism was, um, was one that would be common for those that are focusing on places like um, South, the British in South Africa or in Kenya, um, the French in Algeria. And it's instead the idea that there's a differential legal regime between settlers and those that are viewed as outsiders, particularly natives. And that this differential legal regime creates distinct arrangements of power and right depending on who you are. And that what marked the American imperial project, Expansion West, was the notion that you have a decentralized project of expansion governed primarily by settlers on the ground and that all settlers everywhere should be treated equally. This is why you can't have colonial dependencies. 
But at the same time, each, uh, these settler communities were reproducing internally structures of exclusion that were built around the differential between native and settler. Um, so that's another set of debate. Is the U.S. an empire that I'm essentially engaged um, in responding to? And then there are, there are a series of others, but I'll, I'll stop there so we can just sort of continue. Yes, very fascinating. And um, I remember the opening of, I think, the, which is the first chapter of your book, when you uh, discuss how elections in the United States have become important all over the world, how it, it seems like everyone in the world, in remote places, people that will probably never travel or have never traveled to the United States, sustain an opinion about how elections here should be conducted, what should happen, because the United States is ultimately such a powerful and influential country. And it's definitely very useful, especially for me as a foreigner, and I, and I bet for many people out there who think about these questions daily and often as they watch the news, um, I think your, your book in, is very important in, in clarifying um, our understanding of what the United States stands for. What are, the sort of, what are the cornerstones of the values and philosophies that of, that form uh, the project of the United States of America. And, and I find it quite symbolic uh, that we're recording this interview in the week of July 4th. <laughs> I hope it's going to be aired um, soon. Uh, but so in continuation of what you were saying, uh, I, was, uh, I was wondering, um, I was wondering um, what, what is your, the, the central thesis of your book concerning sort of you as um, position of U.S. globally, and, or the, um, well, could you, if you could elaborate sure. on that, yeah. Um, okay, so the basic thesis of the book is that for most of the American experience, the U.S. was what I call an experiment in settler colonialism. This meant that it was organized in ways that were comparable to the French in Algeria, the British in South Africa, Australia, Kenya. And it was organized around a basic legal divide between the rights afforded settlers and natives and a set of common principles or common, let's say, institutional practices that you'd see in all of these different settler communities. So heightened militarism, the sense of being an ethnic chosen community in the North American context in the U.S. with a Protestant millennial project. In other words, the idea that in the 17th century, um, North America was going to be a site for the fulfillment of religious ambitions such that you'd have the kingdom of God on earth, that there would be a permanent condition of peace through the fulfillment of a Republican project. Um, then also um, the, the sense of being under permanent threat from outsiders, particularly native outsiders. But crucially, in all of these different settler communities, far greater internal equality, internal egalitarianism among insiders than what you would see in the home country in England, or in France. And in the American project, there were four different components that marked settler empire. The first was the centrality of property to social membership. So this meant that Americans carried from England a radicalized Republican tradition that saw economic independence, control of the conditions of your own work, as critical to being truly free and as bound to enjoying really self-rule, participatory control over all the primary sites of social life. So this is a very rich account of freedom that's bound in the notion that everyone should enjoy meaningful social power, 
should be able to make the most important decisions at work, at home, or in politics about the central questions that face them. But in the U.S., this was tied to empire, to expansion, because in order for individuals to have enough property to be truly economically independent, there had to be widespread distribution of land, and that meant a continual project of territorial growth. So that's the second key element in the American experience. The third was that um, freedom in the 18th and 19th century was understood as not necessarily universal, inevitably exclusive. This was because for some to enjoy the benefits of free work, others would have to engage in degraded forms of work. And the way that Americans solved this problem was by ethnicizing, racializing the divide between free and unfree work, by reducing slaves um, to individuals that engaged in the most unfree forms of work and then justifying that reduction based on ethnic terms. And then fourth, the other key point is that this project was sustained by open European immigration something that we don't necessarily appreciate today, that Americans understood early on that you couldn't have a growing dynamic project of expansion unless you had more and more people coming beyond just colonists from England. So the U.S. created a series of laws like the prevalence of non-citizen voting um, for, um, for, for, for immigrants from Europe, um, access to Western land grants, um, you know, practices that sustained immigration from abroad, but only applied to Europeans. So if you were a free black or Mexican citizen or somebody that was Native American, you might have had long um, ties to the land. You might even be a formal citizen, but you wouldn't have enjoyed any of the same benefits and many of the same benefits that were applied to settlers even before um, they became citizens. And the argument that I make is that this framed most of American politics, or most of American politics, through the end of the 19th, the beginning of the 20th century. And at that moment, um, the basic sort of framework started to collapse. So you have the collapse of the, of the frontier as a site for more land because the frontier closes. You have the rise of industrialization. It means more and more people, regardless of ethnicity, are engaged in forms of work like tenancy or wage labor that historically understood was unfree. You have um, the Civil War, which by eliminating slavery starts to challenge racial dynamics. You have concerns that European immigrants are now competitors rather than co-participants in a settler project of expansion. And that there were efforts by various groups, particularly members of the Knights of Labor, folks that were involved in the agrarian labor protests, to think about, well, how can we sustain this rich, robust theory of freedom, which is in fact a theory of the U.S. as a cooperative commonwealth committed to expanding economic independence to all and disconnect it from the imperial dimension. And the kind of tragic argument that I make in the book is that instead of sustaining this rich account of freedom, what happens at the beginning of the 20th century through the New Deal and especially crystallized in the early days of the Cold War is instead what's sustained is an imperial project a project that thinks of the U.S. in millennial terms as exceptional as having a missionary project not just across the continent, but globally, where all threats everywhere are threats to an internal account of freedom, to an internal account of security, and that the U.S. is rightly and solely equipped to possess an international police power that justifies the continual intervention in the domestic politics of other countries. Now, what makes this vision of sort of American identity built around 
millennial interventionist politics um, tragic to me is that where in the 19th century freedom was bound to empire, empire was still the servant of a rich and robust account of equality. But instead, increasingly over the course of the 20th century, particularly in the last half of the 20th century, what you see is the rise of a very powerful president at the center of an increasingly interpenetrated corporate and state apparatus that asserts discretionary power at home and abroad, and that justifies its authority in terms of the expansion of, uh, of uh, American police power. And that, if anything, this means that empire has become unmoored or disconnected from the account of freedom. It's no longer in the service of a rich theory of liberty. And rather than settler empire, I call this period in American imperial politics humanitarian imperialism because it's built on the notion that what the U.S. spreads abroad um, is the fulfillment of a particular set of, you know, oftentimes human rights or uh, democracy and freedom objectives, and that the nature of American power is inherently um, to spread such objectives abroad when it asserts its, uh, its international police power. Yes, and I think it, it's, it's, I think uh, because of your discussion of this topic, the American interventionism, I thought it was it is very pertinent to current political debates concerning U.S. intervention or presence um, in Libya and um, elsewhere in Iraq. And so, but what I, what is missing, I think, in these debates is sort of philosophical and historic exploration behind U.S. interventionism, as opposed to just uh, a legal, domestic or international legal debates on, on the powers of the executive or, or um, uh, like foreign policy powers. So I think your, your book complements this debate very, very extensively. Um, and if you could just elaborate on like, what, are the, what are the particular tenets which inform this American conception of presence abroad or uh, interventionism um, in um, uh, foreign policy or in other countries? Yeah. So what I argue is that um, in response in many ways to um, arguments made by the Knights of Labor um, and uh, uh, the Populist Party and sort of radicals in the Populist Party, um, that essentially what the U.S. has to do is, is move away from an imperial politics both at home and abroad and to focus um, much more centrally on expanding the possibilities of self-rule to all individuals, regardless of gender ethnicity, uh, that's at the most sort of emancipatory, um, that you saw in the late 19th century a series of arguments reasserting the centrality of empire as a way of developing and sustaining a new American political identity. And the folks that I focus on here are uh, Congregationalist Pastor Josiah Strong, but also Teddy Roosevelt, and really especially um, Woodrow Wilson. And what I see Wilson is doing is taking this classic Protestant account of the specialness or uniqueness of the American project as creating a permanent republic of peace and globalizing it, both globalizing it and making secular the, the central objective, saying, well, what defines the U.S. is a commitment to self-determination, um, uh, the notion that individuals domestically should be able to um, participate in elections and then elect their leaders, so an electoral democratic politics, and that the U.S. has a responsibility to 
to promote this basic account of internal freedom everywhere. And by promoting this account of internal freedom everywhere, the U.S. will create a global experience of peace. Um, now, this seems like a perfectly sort of uh, sympathetic and, you know, um, indeed pacific account of the possibilities of American power, but it came with a profound and deep dark side. And you can see it in a few different ways. The first is that the thought that, that security at home is tied to the global projection of American power has meant over time that wherever there's the perception of instability elsewhere, the thought is that external instability is somehow tied to internal freedom. And so that the U.S. not only um, has the right to, but must intervene to quell or quiet disorder elsewhere. Um, the problem is that oftentimes American actions um, are really since they're built on both internal interests and have limited sense of well, what's actually going on in that other country tend to either exacerbate um, external forms of disorder to impose American solutions on uh, external conflicts, on foreign conflicts, where um, there hasn't been an internal social consensus that's emerged um, to provide a clear solution. That's one problem. The second is that this emphasis on promoting or spreading an American account of freedom took place paradoxically precisely at a moment where internally the U.S. Um, was increasingly uncertain or unclear about well, what in fact does democracy and freedom mean. So that these are talismanic terms that are invoked, but besides an occasional election or um, the spread of, um, you know, a bit, essentially like a capitalistic market economy, like what in fact is the substance uh, of liberty for Americans? And so what ended up happening is that the U.S. was promoting abroad not necessarily a thick or rich account of self-determination for others, which treated um, other communities, particularly in the formerly colonized world or in Asia and Africa, as co-equals, as part of um, a set of negotiations and, uh, and compromises, discussions about how to organize a, a global community, but instead was promoting a rigid account of national interests tied to security and power politics. And I actually think that you can see this at work in many of the current interventions over the last decade, and indeed going back to the Cold War and before. So in Iraq, in Afghanistan, and Libya today, where the U.S.'s practices um, combine various mixed motives. So on the one hand, there's this rich language of human rights that's really clearly tied to this long-standing millennial project of freedom and democracy, the elimination of various forms of violence that individuals might face. And so the human rights discourse similarly is about eliminating the forms of violence that individuals might face from dictators or other um, state and non-state actors. And so there's a, a neat symbi symbiosis or continuity between the project of expanding freedom and the project of promoting human rights. And so the, you have leaders that are invoking humanitarian objectives in pursuing various interventions. But at the same time, these interventions are also self-consciously meant to serve clear strategic objectives, like, for example, um, uh, maintaining a particular regional order in the Middle East or uh, ensuring that you have friendly regimes in oil-rich states um, or sustaining what are viewed as um, dynamics that limit or inhibit um, 
political actors that are considered enemies, like Iran. Um, and so you have a combination of a human rights rhetoric and the projection of American power that's really about interest promotion. And when these two intermingle, the consequence oftentimes is the replacement of internal objectives. Well, what in fact would self-determination mean on the ground for communities that are engaged in revolt or resistance? Um, so the replacement of an authentic account of self-determination with an external project of essentially Pax Americana. Um, and this intermingling of human rights language and strategic objectives built around international police power has meant that for a century we have an aggressive form of American interventionism that doesn't see its own interventionism in terms of classic forms of imperial power, doesn't recognize that the American project of promoting freedom has much in, in common with, for example, the British argument that, um, that the British Empire was promoting civilization. And moreover, it means that the U.S. finds itself reproducing many of the same pitfalls in intervention after intervention. One would have thought, for example, after the Iraq War, that the dynamic and drive for humanitarian intervention would have receded in the U.S. But almost immediately, when similar circumstances emerged or arose in the context of Libya, clearly Gaddafi is a, a problematic and uh, you know, a terrible dictator, but the way in which the U.S. as well as the European powers engaged with Libya replayed exactly these same problems of replacing the interests of local actors with the strategic interests of a foreign power, using the language of rights and liberty to sustain a set of, um, uh, of really interest objectives that are built around um, short-term and long-term strategic purposes, and not recognizing the ways in which mixed motives can actually undermine the legitimate quest for, for human rights by those on the ground. Fantastic. And indeed, your, your theory on the role of human rights in U.S. foreign interventionism is definitely reminiscent of some of the really interesting pieces in postcolonial literature and human rights. Definitely, I can see a clear connection here. And I was wondering on your theory of the revolution as well, because I see that in the opening you argue against some of the sort of dominant and established accounts of the U.S. revolution, in particular Hannah Arendt, who is a very dear figure to me for her work on human rights and statelessness in particular. But you, you um, explain at page 21 that, uh, and I quote, at the stake in the conflict between England and her colonies was the meaning and purpose of British empire. And you try to reconceptualize the understanding of U.S. revolution. Um, so what, in what sense are those, those dominant accounts out there wrong and mistaken? And in what, in, in what is the particular character of the American Revolution, according to you? Yeah, so um, actually one, one last coda to the, the previous set of questions. Um, that, so the book begins with um, a quote from Walt Whitman facing west from California's shores. And the reason why I use this quote is that it emphasizes the sense of restless energy that led American settlers to, you know, essentially conquer the continent, but ends with this moment of reflection where um, Whitman says, uh, let me actually just read it for a second. Long having wandered since, round the earth having wandered, 
Now I face home again, very pleased and joyous. But where is what I started for so long ago, and why is it yet unfound? And the thought here is that you can actually conceive of much of American politics in these terms. So today the U.S. enjoys tremendous global power. It has an ideology, a self-conscious ideology of human rights promotion abroad and of its assertion of its international police power as humanitarian rather than explicitly imperial. Um, but in practice, the, this power, um, this sort of global capacity is increasingly disconnected from what it was meant to serve, which is a rich account of freedom. So there's a sense of both restlessness but in a way, not just not despondency, but uncertainty about, well, what was it all for? What was the purpose of enjoying such authority? What's the purpose of enjoying such global privilege? Um, what were the principles that were supposed to guide it? Now, going back to the point of the revolution, where did this all come from? The dominant accounts of the revolution, and you see this in Arendt, and you see this also in Gordon Wood, um, the radicalism of the American Revolution, um, emphasize the notion that the revolution was really um, w was radical because for Arendt, it was a political revolution. The French Revolution was a social revolution governed by issues of class. For Arendt, it was a political revolution committed to creating a new house for freedom, founding for the first time in a sense in human history a new modern project built around the fulfillment of a set of republican ambitions. For Gordon Wood, what makes the, the revolution radical is it, it broke down all of the hierarchical bonds that marked the colonial experience and created a new society that ended up becoming a productive capitalist economy built around a meritocratic ideal and the notion of equality, to perform of liberal equality. And my point is not, not that these are wrong entirely, but that they miss the dynamic of, in fact, what was taking place that in the 1760s, England found itself really all of a sudden with a truly global empire, one that expanded from France after its victories over France in the French and Indian Wars. I mean, sorry, from um, French Canada, Quebec, after its victories over the French, uh, France and the French and Indian Wars, all the way to Bengal. So it now found itself with 100,000 new um, Native American subjects, 75,000 new French-Canadian subjects, 10 million new Indian subjects. And simply to maintain control over this vast empire, it found itself reorganizing what had been the imperial status quo on the ground. Beforehand, really what the British Empire had amounted to was a series of small and relatively isolated eastern seaboard colonies uh, that we think of as, you know, North American colonies that became the independent United States, that much of the imperial project was run in a decentralized fashion by settlers on the ground, that while the British um, imperial authorities um, back in London always maintained the claim in theory that they had the discretionary power to alter and reshape institutions, in practice, what happened was um, a relatively um, autonomous um, and for settler insiders, uh, democratic form of political governance. Now, this form of internal egalitarianism went hand-in-hand, hand, however, with um, the rise of slavery, the subjection of Native Americans to various forms of bondage, the, the claiming of Native American land um, for, uh, for settler purposes, 
and an intense Protestantism that was deeply suspicious of Catholicism as a religion marked by um, tyranny and dependence, a hierarchical religion where individuals paid obeisance basically to a pope. And what happened after 1763 is that this dynamic in which settlers saw themselves as the one true free subjects on ethnic and institutional grounds of the British Empire and all other subjects as essentially imperial and conquered subjects um, who were appropriately subject to various forms of discretionary and prerogative power began to collapse. And England found itself, well, you know, um, creating institutions that were more religiously tolerant, for example, of the Catholic, or took into account the land rights of Native Americans, or introduced in various ways forms of, uh, of discretionary power vis-a-vis -vis its own Anglo subjects. Um, and this reorganization of the British Empire that challenged the status of settlers at the top of a hierarchy, of a, essentially a, an ethnic and cultural hierarchy, was viewed on the ground as a basic threat to what it meant to be British. It was also viewed as a direct threat to the possibility of economic independence because it might close off access to land. It might challenge the possibility of slave owning. It might introduce new forms of imperial authority that were emerging in India in the context of North America. And this is why I think that really the best way, one of the best ways to think about the revolution is not as you know, building a unique house for freedom, but as defending an old imperial de facto status quo against threats presented by the British Empire, and in the process, defending both a deeply exclusionary and racial project as well as a rich account of Republican freedom based on economic independence. That in many ways, those slaveholding settlers in Virginia were both the articulators of an account of freedom, but also one that was necessarily bound to exclusion. And this is why um, the best comparisons for thinking about, well, you know, how would you compare the U.S. to later projects would be to the British in South Africa or the French in Algeria, where you have communities that are much more intensely assertive of either the Republican tra tradition or the egalitarian dimensions of, um, of home country politics, but see it in deeply ethnicized, um, literally black and white terms, where outsiders are enemies. Yes, this also touches upon your theory of citizenship and formation of citizen subjects in, in part. I, w I was wondering, you, you use the term stratified citizenship um, in your book, and I was wondering if you could briefly just elaborate on that if you wanted to, just to build on what you have just said. Yeah, sure. So the argument I make is that after independence, what, um, what American settlers did in developing a new constitutional project, particularly through the, the federal constitution, but also before in the years between um, 1776 and really the first decades of the 19th century, is that they structured this new constitutional project around two forms of sovereign power that mirrored the old de facto imperial status quo. So the first form of sovereign power um, is what I would view as discretionary, so that externally when it comes to projects of conquest, territorial expansion, that the U.S. enjoyed uh, an imperial prerogative power that derived initially from the old royal prerogative enjoyed by the king and parliament in England. 
And that this imperial prerogative power um, then justified not only territorial expansion, but the control of those communities that were viewed as outsider communities. But on the other hand, internally, Americans developed another view of sovereign power that was built on popular sovereignty, but Republican values, constitutional limitations, and checks. And so that internally, the project is one of civil libertarian values and deep restraints on the forms of discretionary power that can be applied to those that are viewed as settlers, those that are viewed as proper insiders. And this ended up mirroring two different forms of membership that marked the American experience. One that I call free citizenship, and free citizens were those that enjoyed the benefits of economic independence and full political participation. This even included non-citizen immigrants that were from Europe before they actually naturalized. And then the other side, you have what I call stratified imperial subjects. And these were those communities that were viewed as rightly subject to the forms of discretionary power that marked that one face of American sovereignty. And so here you have free blacks, so uh, non-slave blacks, Mexican-American citizens after the Mexican-American War, Native Americans, slaves. And that each of these communities found themselves subject to a patchwork arrangement of authority, where a different set of rights um, and forms of power were applied depending on each community, depending on what the overarching interests of the settler project amounted to. And so this meant that you might even have formal citizens, like free blacks in some states were formal citizens, um, or Mexican-Americans after Mexican-American War might, might have been formal citizens, but were denied access to Western land grants, uh, were denied voting rights. Free blacks were oftentimes denied access even into uh, new, newly freed or open territories out west. And so this patchwork arrangement of controls built on the internal judgments of necessity, what I view as um, a stratified form of imperial subjectship, and that these two forms of membership, free citizenship, stratified imperial subjectship, many ways are the two faces of American freedom or the two sides of the story that I'm trying to present, which is one about how freedom and empire have been historically intertwined. And then ultimately, the purpose of the book is, well, well what's unique or special about the American experience? What's unique is the sustained effort going all the way back to the early 19th century, folks like Thomas Skidmore to radicals in the Knights of Labor to um, uh, to, to labor movement activists during the 1930s, to members of the civil rights movement, to immigrant activists today, to disconnect freedom and empire, to think about this rich internal account of liberty as not bound to external forms of subjectship, and to imagine really what's exceptional about the U.S., not a missionary project abroad, but the most sustained attempt you know, to combine modernism, modernity, with a rich Republican heritage built on widespread self-rule, economic control, and cooperative production, cooperative commonwealth. Fascinating. And, and just before we move to perhaps what is going to be my last question on the book panel that the uh, Cornell Journal of Law and Public Policy is hosting about your book, I, I think it would be interesting to hear what, with, what was the feedback received by some of the people that um, – Will be featured in the in the new volume. But just before that, I it struck me um, that you start your book with an epigraph from Walt Whitman. For many reasons, because it it is he is a quintessential American writer, 
And also because some of my friends uh, last year actually went to jail in Republic of Georgia because they demanded renaming of a street which was dedicated for George W. Bush into Walt Whitman's street because that this is what they thought. They thought two faces of American freedom were Walt Whitman on the one hand, quintessential American poet, and George W. Bush. So I thought I, I, I do I do think there is a very interesting uh, connection here, um, and of, of course poetry is always um, refreshing. Um, and so so about the book panel that the journal is hosting, it's going to be I think the the volume is going to be out in fall, but. So what were the main lines of criticism that you received and wh whether you wanted to respond to them in any way? And so what was what is the feel in the community about the book? Yeah, so um, I'd say that there, you know, there are a number of different critiques that one could present. Um, the folks, um, I think at the, the book panel focused on a couple. So I'll just sort of lay those out there. Um, the first critique... Um, is really a, a critique about method, which is that one of the pitfalls of the book, the art, you know, this, this argument would go, is that um, it presents or suggests a single narrative, kind of meta-narrative of the American experience. And one of the things that's really happened in historical scholarship over the last 40, 50 years is that these meta-narratives have gone out of favor. Um, and, you know, actually, I would say that that's good. I mean, it's a, there's, a, there's a good reason why these meta-narratives have gone out of favor is because they, they, they were viewed as doing a disservice to the complexity, the richness of the American experience. And in a way, what we've seen over the last few decades in historical scholarship and legal history and constitutional history, so that I'll speak about what I know, is an emphasis on complexity that you can't tell overarching stories because each of these overarching stories is riddled by internal inconsistencies and disagreements. And so the kind of story that you can tell is one that focuses um, on a particular question, a particular period, that teases out the, the complexities that exist and doesn't seek to make overarching claims or conclusions. To the extent that an overarching claim emerges, it might be in the patchwork of all of these disconnected scholars that are focusing on the forms of complexity that exist. Um, and so the critique is that this is a throwback to the old form of meta-history that rightfully has gone out of fashion. Now, my, my response to it is sort of twofold. The first response is that I actually think that complexity taken to a certain, you know, certain extent, um, poses its own deep problems. In other words, if we think of history, and we think of the past purely through the lens of these internal riddles and inconsistencies that don't really allow us to make larger arguments, then in a way it means that the past no longer is something that's useful to make sense of, well, what's, what's in fact problematic about the present? It can't be used as a tool to think about how to change our institutions because complexity bedevils any attempt to construct a structural argument about, well, how are institutions today actually shaped? What are their limitations and weaknesses? And how should we intervene in them? So to some degree, like up to a certain level, complexity is necessary. The value in being able to think through, well, 
actually, how do we make sense of the past? But past a particular point, complexity becomes um, uh, something that, that undermines the project of thinking, thinking creatively and structurally about change. And this is where my argument fits in. I'm not claiming to, to make a univocal, singular account of the American experience. What I'm instead doing is picking out what I view as a very useful analytical tool. I'm looking for analytical tools. The analytical tool is settler empire. And it's, in my view, a political ideology um, that structured key elements of our constitutional project. By taking this analytical tool, what I want to do what I as guiding institutional elements of American politics that provide the deep structure, so to speak, within which political actors seek change, engage in their form, various forms of agency. And by explaining the shifts and permutations in this deep structure, be able to talk about well, what are the social groups at present that could assert um, various forms of uh, a politics that would truly transform this, what would be the ideas that would promote um, meaningful forms of change? This would mean that my account should be and must be read alongside a variety of other theories, both of the American experience, but also of the specific historical moments. It does not seek to be comprehensive. It does not seek to be a narrative. It seeks instead to trace a single analytical tool across American experience. So that's one kind of critique. The second, and I'll try to be a little quicker about it, is um, I think also both of these, by the way, are fair. And there's a real question about to what extent do I succeed in the book in being able to you know, present the perspective I just articulated. So the second is that the book falls into a kind of nostalgia for the 19th century. And it particularly falls into a kind of nostalgia for the 19th century because it presents a sustained critique of the New Deal particularly what I take to be the constitutional legacy of the New Deal, namely the rise of an assertive presidency that replaces his or her own institutional interests, substitutes the will of the president for the will of the public, and is at the centerpiece of a larger corporatist um, government that in many ways means that the president today is the apt successor for the old English crown rather than you know, consistent with longstanding um, projects of popular self-determination, popular participation, economic independence. So the argument is that this ends up being too totalizing a critique of New Deal, too totalizing critique of the modern state, and that in essence what I do is I reject modernity rather than providing another avenue for modernity and defend instead a kind of nostalgic past. My response to this is twofold. First, um, I'm absolutely not, or first, I'm absolutely not nostalgic, if for no other reason than the fact that the 19th century that I described was one that combined various forms of rich freedom, but with deeply exclusionary politics. And so this is no straightforward defense of a return to the past. Uh, indeed, you know, as somebody that is mixed, I mean, what place would have I have personally had in this path that I'm supposedly nostalgic of. The second point is that this is absolutely a defense of the transformative power of the modern state. That in many ways, the argument that I develop 
through the 19th century is a series of political movements and actors that see the state as an instrument for collective power, for articulating the possibility of transforming economic and political life so that it represents and expresses um, the effective freedom of all Americans, that it's an expression of popular social power, and it also produces a cooperative commonwealth, and that some of the, the policies that were seen as essential to this, like collective bargaining and official sanctions, um, uh, not just a minimum wage, but indeed a, a minimum income, so uh, a guaranteed income for all Americans, this requires having a powerful state that's asserting a set of popular objectives. Um, so this leads to the third point. What's the critique of the New Deal? Many of the things that took place during the New Deal, I'm a strong proponent of. But what I'm presenting instead is what I see as the long-standing constitutional legacy. The long-standing constitutional legacy, unfortunately, is not a vision of social democracy. The long-standing constitutional legacy is a vision of presidential power, disconnected increasingly from popular participation. In this way, somebody like George Bush can be in, in a sense, um, the, the grandson of FDR. It's a similar form of, of statecraft, but organized to serve different purposes. And so that's where the critique of, of the New Deal comes from, and it's tied to a critique of, of statecraft, which is, I want to defend a robust state, but you can only defend a robust state if it's actually tied to popular authority and control. If that robust state is instead tied to corporate interests, or a variety of different forms of, of, of elite authority, then statecraft is itse itself ends up sustaining various, various modes of subordination. That there's nothing inherently good about the state. It's only when the state is bound to a vision of liberty. This brings me to like, sort of the last point about this, which is that the entire book is based on the sense that much of what we think is good has historically and at present is tied to what we think of as bad that there's a, an inevitable, one might even say, dialectical relationship between freedom and subordination. In each historical moment, period, freedom is bound to various forms of subordination. And what I do is I try to articulate what these different forms have been across time. And today, in many ways, the New Deal legacy has produced its own linkages between freedom and subordination. And so what I'm trying to draw out is both what remains emancipatory, but also what continues to be exclusionary and subordinating about the present moment. Um, I'll stop there. I mean, if there's a, a chance, I wouldn't mind sort of uh, introducing a thought about uh, Obama and, and immigration, but uh, I'll stop. Absolutely. Absolutely. No, absolutely. Absolutely. I think it would be interesting. Um, as, much as, we can, as much as we can use your work to enlighten ourselves in terms of what is going on out there uh, in public life nowadays, please go ahead. Oh, yeah. So uh, the point that I was going to make, you, you made a point about the similar, um, you know, personal backgrounds that, that, that I have with the, the president. Um, and, and one of the things that I did want to say about this is that to me it speaks to two different elements of the civil rights movement. We today tend to think of the civil rights movement. And the reason why I want to focus on the civil rights movement, because I think of it as the most recent sustained attempt to actually disconnect freedom and empire and create a, uh, a continuous project, not just a popular mobilization, but popular mobilization organized to assert effective control in the workplace, 
in politics, um, and to create something like a cooperative commonwealth. But this isn't the memory we have of the civil rights movement. The memory we have of the civil rights movement is one face of it, namely that the civil rights movement's legacy is to provide access to elite institutions to the most worthy elements from within the black community, to ensure that African-Americans, too, can participate in a project of social mobility and gain middle-class respectability. But this was never all of the civil rights movement. It was only one side. And indeed, if you look at the writings of you know, Martin Luther King or Malcolm X, Martin Luther King in his last published book said that what we needed in the U.S. was a radical restructuring of the infrastructure of American society. And by this, what he meant was that it wasn't enough just to ensure that you have black elites that also participate in institutions of authority. You actually, in order for African-Americans as a whole to be free, all Americans had to be free. This meant challenging the forms of hierarchy that existed in economic and political life and also linking the black experience to the colonial experience abroad, seeing in the history of slavery and segregation parallels, indeed the same global project that produced forms of indirect and direct colonial rule in parts of Asia and Africa. And so understanding freedom at home, both as a sustained project of transforming domestic hierarchies, but also as a sustained project of linking with various modes of anti-imperial assertiveness and self-determination elsewhere. And one of the things that I think is interesting is that somebody like Obama actually represents in his own personal background precisely the linkage between these two, that he has an African experience um, and he has a family that's mixed that was involved very deeply in independence and anti-colonial politics. But unfortunately, in the political presentation that he's cultivated over the last decade plus, He's replaced what I think is a much more radical and interesting personal history that links to the second face, in many ways, of the civil rights movement. He's replaced that more radical dimension with a narrative that's quite conventional, which is he represents now the apotheosis of the vision of the civil rights movement as providing worthy and educated blacks with the same opportunity to succeed at the highest levels of corporate and political leadership Um, and to disconnect, in essence, what had been a domestic project of widespread self-rule from a global project of anti-imperialism. And so now somebody like Obama can very comfortably sit at the head of an interventionist American police power globally without any sense of uncertainty or disconnect between you know, his own personal history, his own personal experience, and the uses to which American power is currently being presented. In a way, what it means is that not only is um, Bush in the grandson of FDR, Obama, despite the, the civil rights movement, is too in the same trajectory of American leadership, uh, in the same trajectory of Uh, a politics that has ultimately sought to rationalize various forms of U.S. power rather than to transform it. Excellent. I I cannot think of a a better 
uh, way to inform us of so many things all together in an hour. <laughs> so thank you very much for a fantastic conversation on human rights, on justice, on foreign policy, on what is America, on Arendt, on settlers, everything. <laughs> uh, it's, so, it was my pleasure, and uh, thank you very much for asking me to do this. I enjoyed it. Thank you. You have been listening to the New Books on Human Rights, where every week, as you know, we pick a new book on human rights and discuss it with its author. Today, we spoke with Aziz Rana, professor at Cornell University, to discuss his book, The Two Faces of American Freedom. This is Anna Delize, and hope to have you back here next week.